This podcast is brought to you by Premiere, the UK's leading Christian media organisation. As we approach the end of our financial year, we want to remind you that podcasts like this are only possible due to the generosity of supporters like you. You could help reach millions of people throughout the year through shows just like this. Make your best gift today at premierchristianradio.plus. The Profile You're listening to Premier Christian Radio Well, hello and welcome to The Profile here on Premier Christian Radio with me, Sam Hales. The Profile is the show where we delve into a person's life, faith and ministry. And I'm delighted to say I am here today with Shane Claiborne. Shane is a prominent speaker, activist and author. He's recently been touring America asking Christians to surrender their guns to be melted down into tools. It's a vision based on the Old Testament prophets and he's looking to do something very similar here in the UK only with knives. We'll talk about that in a moment. Uh, But when he isn't melting guns into garden tools, he heads up Red Letter Christians, which he co-founded with the prominent American Christian leader Tony Campolo. Shane is also the author of a number of books, including Jesus for President and The Irresistible Revolution. Shane Claiborne, welcome to the show. Yeah, it's great to be here, man. Thanks for having me. Can I please have your accent as well? <laughs> Can you give me some lessons? I wish I could put that in a, yeah, a little bottle for you. but yeah. <laughs> That's a shame. We'll have to try and figure out a way of me learning to speak. Southern American, is that is that the term? I'd say that. That's yeah. good. Yeah, Southern. Good. Yeah. So I, grew, tell- I grew up in Tennessee. You know, that's, that's our Bible Belt, Deep South. So, yeah. Amazing. Cool. So tell me more about Tennessee, which I'm guessing is quite different to London. Uh, tell me about life growing up and what that looked like for you. Yeah, man. Well, I grew up in a, a small, town um, a, a small family too my dad died when I was pretty young um, so my mom and I are tight I'm an only child only grandchild on oh, both wow. sides yeah. so uh, but and Tennessee is known for um, it's known for its southern hospitality you know so we we um, it's a it's a beautiful place uh, in the mountains the smoky mountains it's also where Dolly Parton's from, so oh, Dollywood wow. and all that. You know, I remember when she won the Kennedy Award or something. My uncle goes, "I remember when she used to play on the porch." You know, so that that's uh, my little my my. I think it was my great grandfather was the mailman by horseback. So I'm I'm, you know, my folks are hill people. Um, and there's also um, some things to yet be redeemed. You know, we we still really have a lot of the residue of slavery and racism. Um, the Ku Klux Klan. We have a park that's named after uh, one of the uh, founders of the KKK. So um, in my high school growing up, we had the Confederate flag everywhere. The, it was a Maryville High School rebels. But I mean, a lot of that shifting and changing. Uh, um, and and I'm, I just went back to my high school, public high school, and I, I, I spoke for the, the uh, uh, like, hundred year anniversary or something. I gave them a book that Mother Teresa had signed for the wow. public school library. So anyway, that's, you know, that's where I grew up. And I, I always wanted to keep um, celebrating my family and, and some of the good things that mm. are worth celebrating, but I also wanted to get outside of that. And that's yeah. what brought me to Philly. You know, I went to, to Eastern University, but my mom was, was 11 hour drive from, from Tennessee. My mom was like, if God wants you to go that far, God can pay for it, you know. And so I got a scholarship, and I, God, God made the way, you yeah. know. But yeah, it's yeah. really interesting. I mean, we'll go on to talk about some of this, but but as you kind of grow up and get older, and I guess as a Christian, you look back on your family and your culture. And I guess you do try and identify what was good and what was godly about that culture, but what also wasn't good and what wasn't right. And we'll, we'll come on and talk about that. But but you mentioned your mum said, you know, if you can, if you want to go that far off to college, then God will have to pay for it. So was was Christian faith kind of always there in your family background? Yeah, my mom always took me uh, to church, and um, we 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 kind of bounced around a little bit. Being a single parent family my mom had also been through a divorce and um you know the church isn't always as gracious as we could be and so we we went a few different places before we found a a, a kind of um a really warm church that I grew up in, and um, it happened to be Methodist, so I've got the Methodist roots, you know, and I've I've still really embraced a lot of that Wesley, and uh, mm-hmm. I love John Wesley and yeah. that that history, and um, 
But you know, I, I I saw the Methodist crosses with the the fire on it, and I saw the fire throughout the history of the Wesleyan tradition. But like, it still felt a little like that fire was on the hymnal on the altar. But I, I wanted more of that, so I met these Pentecostal guys in my high school, and they were very charismatic, you know, and. Um, I was half joking uh, on a little dare from my Methodist friends went over and said, I heard you guys speak in tongues and believe in miracles. <laughs> and they, they, they were like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> come on. And so I went to worship there and I fell in love with the charismatic church. Uh, so I, I got rebaptized because none of that sprinkling stuff, you know, you got to go under the water. <laughs> so I, but I also um, really um, saw the spirit move there and I became a believer in, in miracles and um, and, and the spirit. So I've got this, I've become kind of this mutt, you know, the blended. And yeah. now, you know, with Catholic Church and, you know, later with working with Mother Teresa, all those things kind of have shaped me. But certainly yes. um, uh, that, that that's a big part of uh, who I am, I guess, the, the, the Methodist charismatic fusion. Yeah. yeah. You mentioned um, working with Mother Teresa. And I have to say, every time I've heard you speak or give interviews, you've talked about Mother Teresa. And I have to say, if if I work with Mother Teresa, I would do the same. How did that come about? Well, it, it, she's also, it, it, I mean, it's a part of who has really shaped our spirituality and our community in Philly. Um, when we started thinking about uh, who's someone that has really lived out their faith, um, she she was an exemplary model of that. And uh, happened to be alive, unlike John Wesley and yeah. Dorothy Day, and you know St. Francis of Assisi. So all you these kind other of sought her out then. Yeah, we did. We wrote her a letter, and then um, she didn't write back. And so we just that that we were eighteen, and you know nothing was impossible. So we ended up um, calling some different orders of hers and they gave us a number and she picked up the phone you know and invited us to come to India so some of my friends in Philadelphia we went out there and I've been a couple of times uh, um, so I worked in the orphanages and in the home for the dying I I lived in um, a village that she had started with folks that were outcasts m- mostly by skin diseases leprosy and other skin diseases and so I mean that was it was massive in, in yeah. Uh, shaping me hugely formative experience yeah. Uh, yeah I mean I guess I guess those experiences have just so lived with you that, that those things still inspire you today and it's it's just at the forefront I guess of, of your thinking and the way you speak and um, because she was such a huge a huge character I suppose an influence in your life yeah a lot of what she talked about even for our community uh, the name, the simple way, is the mm. name of my community, North Philly. She wrote a book called uh, uh, "The Simple Path," I think it was. But one of the things that she said is, "Following Jesus is simple, but that doesn't mean it's easy." Mm. You know, it's about love. It's about loving God and loving our neighbors. And so, but the 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 kind of simplicity of her her love and um, her love for Jesus. You know, she called Jesus her spouse. And so uh, this this the intimacy that she had. Um, but she also um, didn't really like all the hype, you know, and hoorah. And um, she she said, uh, uh, what's important is not doing great things, but uh, doing small things with great love. And so it's not how much we do, but how much we love mm-hmm. we put into every act. So that uh, for a long time at The Simple Way, we had right above our door, today let's do small things with great love or not even answer the door, you know, that that was really um, what uh, uh, has shaped kind of our charism, you know, or our vibe uh, Mm -hmm. is let's let's try to meet people with as much love as we can. And what's important is not how many people we feed today, but do people feel loved as we do it? So tell me more about the simple way. What exactly is it? Is it a church? Is it a community? What is it? Yeah. So we went to India, I think it was like 19... Uh, 95 or 96 and we came back and I mean I, I always say one of the things we learned in India is you don't have to go to Calcutta to find Calcutta you know Mother Teresa said Calcuttas are everywhere if we we'll only have eyes to see so pray that you you know God would give you the eyes to see the opportunities where you are so right after that we came back and um, one of the the catalytic things for us in Philly had been a group of homeless moms 
who had no, they didn't have many options. And there were, uh, it's our fastest growing homeless population is women and children, but there's a least amount of shelter space and stuff. So they had been moving, uh, had moved into an abandoned church, um, a Catholic building, um, and they were living there and they were being evicted. So we uh, came alongside of them. And then out of that, um, experience and reading in the you know the book of acts the early church shared everything they had we that all was uh a really powerful for us and we we ended up pulling our money together um wasn't a lot you know as college students in the <laughs> 90s but we pulled our money together bought a house and um over the years, we bought other abandoned houses and moved into them, or you know, some of them we got for as cheap as one dollar. Wow. You know, so we you just built this little village. And last year was our twentieth anniversary, and we've got gardens and a greenhouse and murals, and you know, all kinds of programs and stuff. But mostly, it's home, and we've been building uh, up that neighborhood for the last two decades. Where did the red letter Christian movement idea encounter? Where did that first come in for you? Uh, a friend of ours was being interviewed. I actually down in my home state in Tennessee, and it was a. Uh, it, it's it's worth noting that it was not a Christian radio show. Um, it was a, a country music DJ um, who had Jim Wallace, friend of ours, on uh, as a guest, and they were talking. He said, "You know what? I've the, the DJ said to Jim, you, I've read a lot of the Bible, and there's parts of it that I love, but there's also parts of it that I." find really confusing and, and even troubling, mm. you know, and he, he said, but I've always liked the stuff in red. And he was talking about, you know, the old Bibles had the words of Jesus in red. And so he, but he just said, said it so nonchalantly, you know, and he said, you, you guys like the stuff in red. You should call yourselves red letter Christians because <laughs> oh, wow. there's all, a lot of other Christians yeah. that don't seem to pay much attention to this right. stuff in red. And, um, <laughs> but it kind of stuck, you know, and, um, and, and so we, we've, uh, uh, you know, often joke that Gandhi said, I, I love Jesus. I just wish the Christians acted more like him, you know. So we want a Christianity that acts like Jesus again, yeah. that ser- reads the Sermon on the Mount and said, yeah. what if Jesus meant that stuff? So so Red Letter Christians started in America. You and Tony Campolo founded it. You say Jim Wallace was involved Yeah, Jim well. and other folks. Yeah. But we also realized that there's a lot of older white folks, and you know t- Tony and Jim, Ron yep. Sider, all these folks are really have been ringing the bell of Jesus sure. and justice for a while. Yep. But there's a whole new generation. Right. Um, you know, yeah. there's a, I mean, there's a whole, uh, um, there, there's all kinds of social shifts happening, yeah. uh, you know, in our country right now. But we also see them um, in the church, and and specifically, I think, in evangelicalism. Um, as we, yeah. we, we, we see that. So we, yeah. you know, a big go of ours from the beginning is to decenter the, the, the white voices only and to build a real mm. uh, diverse yeah. and beautiful community. And Red Letter Christians is now in the UK, has a presence Yeah, we're here. launching it. Ash Barker and Sally and, uh, man, and, you know, so many other folks that all over the UK will we'll be uh, yeah. launching this thing. So it's really about, I guess, rediscovering if that's the right word the red letters of the bible you say the the words that are printed in red in some bibles the words of jesus and i guess your analysis would be that some christians have we've actually skipped over what jesus himself said and maybe we've gone more to um paul or to the other parts of new testament and we've we're in danger of neglecting um the red letters so so is it a case of just trying to remind us that those red letters are there because i know some people get a little bit uncomfortable when they think well surely you're not suggesting that the rest of the Bible isn't important. You're not suggesting, you know, not all of the Bible is the word of God. So how do you deal with that kind of criticism that might say, you don't want to overemphasize one bit of the Bible over the other, do you? Well, so here's the thing is, is that it's not that the, we're not, we're not saying the black letters don't matter. The whole Bible doesn't, isn't the word of God or something like that. But I think what we're saying is that Jesus is the lens through which we read the Bible right. and through which we interpret both the Bible and the world we're living in, that, that we, we don't just have the Word on paper, we have the Word become flesh. And what has happened for a lot of folks, I think, is they're actually interpreting Jesus through the lens of the Old Testament or through the lens of Paul's writing, and we end up um, uh, 
well, Tony often says, uh, he quotes a sociologist that said, God created us in his image and we decided to return the favor. <laughs> you know, so we, we kind of made Jesus into our image yeah, and, so and true, who we want him to be. And, and, and I think as we see Jesus as the, the hermeneutic, you know, it's a big word, but as our interpreting tool for the scripture, um, when verses are misused and yeah. pulled out of context or they're used in different ways, when, when, when Bible verses seem to be competing against each other, Jesus becomes the referee. Right. You know, and Jesus is our sounding mm-hmm. board. Um, and I think what we see in Christianity in the U.S. right now, evangelicalism, white evangelicalism, it, there's, there's different um, iterations of that here in the U.K. But in the U.S., the fact that 81% of white evangelicals voted for Trump, you see like, wow, the same people that led me to Jesus in the Bible Belt in East Tennessee have led us to Donald Trump. And when uh, we look at Jesus and bounce things, you know, bounce Trump off Jesus, and, and not just Trump, but the policies, the administration, the state of our country, uh, you see a pretty pretty yeah. deep contrast, yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and and that's the problem is we've kind of conflated these uh, yeah. these different allegiances. It's, it's so true what you say about us all, the danger of us all trying to make Jesus in our own image, making God in our own image. I think of a, a friend of mine who isn't a Christian, but he noticed, you know, Sam, why is it that every painting and picture of Jesus, why is it that he's always white? Wasn't Jesus dark-skinned? You think, right, right. isn't that interesting that someone who isn't even a Christian has noticed how we have made Jesus in our own image rather than, as you say, going back to the text and saying, hey, Jesus told us to do some pretty radical, difficult, crazy things. And right. are we really willing to follow through on that? Yeah, I mean, and it gets really bad. I mean, you, you in the U.S. right now, there are bumper stickers that say, that have Jesus with an assault rifle. And they, it says if Jesus had had a gun, uh, he he might still be alive. You're like, whoa. We have, we have politicians right now that are arguing that if it weren't for the death penalty... Jesus wouldn't have died and saved the world. So God loves the death penalty. Wow. I mean, this is, this yeah. is, a, and, it, and that sounds like kind of wild, I think, to folks in the UK. Um, but that's why we keep coming back to Jesus is the best corrective to this toxic forms of evangelicalism is Jesus. And, and I mean, that, that's the irony of it, you yeah. know, is, is that when we lose our center on Jesus, we end up talking about things that Jesus didn't talk a lot about, and we don't talk about the things that Jesus said a whole lot about. And so it really recenters us. And, it, and, and, you know, even Jesus said things like that. He said, you've heard it said, you know, he said, Moses told you this. And things like the eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. That's part of why I wrote a book on the death penalty that celebrates the Old Testament and sees Jesus as the fulfillment of that. But Jesus is, is saying that this, this idea of an eye for an eye, a tooth for tooth i want to i want to show you what that really where where this idea takes us you know and um so with the death penalty you know i think that that idea that we um it was limiting the harm that we could do to someone so it was the idea of reciprocal justice if you poke my eye out i can poke your eye out but jesus is going to say hey maybe we can even do better than that yeah you may have a legal right to harm the person in as much as they've harmed you but um I'm going to show you a way to, to do even better than that. Are you hoping that red letter Christian is a kind of label that people might start using instead of evangelical Christian that people might say, I am a red letter Christian? Well, we, we're not really trying to start a brand or a franchise as much as a movement that is centered on Jesus again. But I, I think we need new language. And part of what's kind of provocative and imaginative about red letter Christians is people are like, what does that mean? You know, or like, uh, and they, you know, you, you kind of uh, uh, a create a conversation. Yeah. yeah. And, and w- some of our words have just gotten stale, like evangelical. The root of evangelical means good news. The problem is many evangelicals the news that they're bringing doesn't look very good mm. to a lot of folks. And so while we love the evangel, the gospel, the good news, uh, we, we, we want to create some new language that can carry that uh, in, you know, into um, the world we live in right now. So let's talk a bit about beating guns. Yeah. Um, and we'll, we'll talk about beating knives as well. But let's, let's start with the, the book and the context it's written in. I think it's, it's pretty obvious to um, almost everyone outside of America. And of course, it's obvious to many Americans as well that America has a huge problem, a huge issue with guns. The difficulty, I imagine, inside America is there's com- 
competing and conflicting voices on how we solve that problem. So what's your take on America's gun problem and what we do about it? Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, you know, there are folks in, in the U.S. especially that will say this is not a gun problem, it's a heart problem. And what we want to say is it's both. It's a, it's a heart problem and a gun problem. And God heals hearts and people change laws and, and create policies that protect lives. Um, and, and so we could get rid of every gun and, and we, people will still find ways to kill each other. Yeah. You know, um, in the Boston Marathon, it was actually a, a pressure cooker that was turned into a bomb. So we can, we can, you know, we can drive cars in, uh, into crowds and make them weapons. But, but there are some things that are created to kill and they're, they're designed to take life, like an AR-15, an assault rifle, designed to take as many lives as possible, as quickly as possible. And that's exactly what they keep getting used for. And so the question becomes like, do assault rifles belong on our streets? And um, can we do a better job at protecting lives than protecting people? Uh, the, you know, we've, we've kind of protected, protected guns better than we protected people. So can we do a better job at protecting lives? Right now we have 105 lives lost every day in America. Um, and, and it's also why it's so ironic that Donald Trump and offensive that he would come over and say the hospitals here are awash with blood from knife violence. You're like, yeah, you got 105 lives every single day, 38,000 a year being lost to guns. And, and he's taken $30 million from the NRA, you know, from the National Rifle Association. So we've got a lot of problems. But um, so God heals hearts, and that's why I think we do need to see this as something that goes all the way back to Cain and Abel, you know, a sin of a, a brother killing a brother, and that violence has many iterations throughout history. But in, in, in that original story, it says the blood cried out to God from the ground. And so God feels this pain of violence, and, and that's what we want to do, first of all, is sensitize ourselves to the fact that this is not normal and not okay, and it breaks God's heart. It should break our heart. So we, uh, part of the power of what we're doing with the melting of guns is it, it sensitizes people. I think it stirs people in a way that just a, um, books or debates or, you know, um, hearing yeah. a talk can't, you know. Yeah. And you've got an example of this right here with you. You talk about melting down guns. You show yeah, us man. this. Uh... I brought this. I managed to uh, check this legally in my bag. and uh, <laughs> But this is a, this is, a plow. This this is one of the garden tools that we've made. Um, that it formerly was an uh, AR-15. So this was one of those kind of assault rifles. That's the weapon of choice. And we took this off the streets of Philly, melted melted it down into this this uh, hand tool for the garden. And uh, this is what we've been doing all over the country. So I just came off um, a 37 city tour with my friend um, who's the he's the main blacksmith. Our, our organization is called Raw Tools, which is war flipped backwards. Oh, wow. So rawtools.org. Um, <laughs> that's how you, you can check out the stuff we've made. But we may, you know, make all kinds yeah. of uh, shovels and other and things. Th this too. is inspired by the Old Testament prophets, isn't it? This is this yeah. isn't just I mean, it's an amazing idea. It's a great idea. But it's not like you came up with it. There's an actual there's a few verses, isn't there, in the Old Testament that talks about beating spears into plowshares. Yeah, it? exactly. Both Micah and Isaiah, uh, the prophets, speak of uh, uh, God's people beating their swords into plows, their spears into pruning hooks. And then there's a number of other beautiful images of kind of the 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 world that God uh, you know dreams of for us and prophesies through the prophets but it, and it ends by saying nation will not rise up against nation people will learn violence no more they'll study war no more um, that kids will be able to play without fear you know things like this so is a beautiful image but we love that it does begin with us mm -hmm. you know it begins with people that decide not to kill and to transform the tools and weapons of death into mm -hmm. tools of life. Uh, so we, we've been taking guns all over the country. I've got a whole basement full of chopped up guns, you know, and, and I've got a blacksmithing forge and, um, you know, shop in Philly now. And yeah. we, we're, we're kind of creating a network around the country. Yeah. But we have more guns than people in the U.S. Yeah. We've got 5% of the global population in yeah. the U.S., but almost half of the world's guns. Yeah. And we're producing the world's guns in the U.S. We have... Um, right now, we're producing nine and a half 
million yeah. guns a year. That's one gun every three seconds. Wow. It's it's so ingrained culturally in America, isn't it? I mean, I know I know this. I've observed this as an outsider just visiting your your country. I've been in a, a church before, amazing church, wonderful wonderful Christians worshiping God, and suddenly become aware there are a number of people standing there in the congregation, lifting their hands in worship, and of course inside their jacket is a gun. They're they're holding a gun on them at that time, and this is just an ingrained way of life for a lot of people in America. I mean, how do you address that? Would you say as a Christian you shouldn't be carrying a gun or or do you not want to be that restrictive? How how does this work out practically for a Christian living in America where it is legal to carry a gun on your person and there might be might be the way you were brought up or it might just be a genuine safety thing of hey if someone ran into this church and tried to shoot everyone I've got protection on me. How do you how do you think about those sorts of Yeah, issues? and I just want to say that um, one of the things that we we took around the country with us is a Bible case that is it's, my friend is a pastor gave it to me and he said it's one of the top selling Bible cases in the U.S. and it's got a cross and it says Holy Bible on the front. And you open it up and it is a gun case. It's it's designed for a gun but camouflaged as a Bible case. And it's designed for Christians to carry guns to church and in public. So, I mean, this goes deep, you know, and we have pastors that are telling their people, bring your guns to church. There's a whole underground network of folks that are um, uh, protectors of the flock, that that arm uh, and bring guns to church. So um, what I would say is that the cross and the gun give us two very different versions of power. And they, one says, I'm willing to die, and the other says, I'm willing to kill. And the idea of the, the gun enthusiasts, mm-hmm. not, not just gun owners, but there's a certain gun population that are very extremists, and their ideas of stand your ground, you know, look very different from Jesus's love your enemies and turn the other cheek. And so they're, I mean, these are conflicting messages right. that I think every Christian has to try to navigate and reconcile. And I, I find it impossible to reconcile the NRA with the Sermon on the Mount sure. or a gun in one hand with a cross yeah. in the other. I, I guess I guess my question is, would you find it impossible to reconcile someone who is not a gun enthusiast, but who is carrying a weapon and takes it to church with the mentality of, if someone walked into this building seeking to do one of those terrible mass shootings, I could take him out. Uh, right, to use right, a phrase right. they might want to use. Do you find that way of thinking about carrying a gun impossible to reconcile with the way of Jesus as well? Well, I, I think first that we, we need we need a healthier, better conversation on um, guns um, in America. And, and um, we did a lot of research for our book to dispel some of the myths that um, guns make us safer um, and that the you know the NRA's language is a the a bad guy with a gun is stopped by a good guy with a gun and uh, you know is that really the case are guns the most effective way so I think we can have like really good conversations about that and that's why like I don't want to see the enemy um, as gun owners I mean half my family owned guns right. I grew up with guns <laughs> yeah. you know um, but they were for hunting you know and, right. and and I even think that our idea that arming teachers, arming mm. uh, congregation members. We had someone in my, like an hour from where I live in Tennessee that made this argument, went to church to the board of elders and trustees and was making his case, we need guns in our church. And he, the gun went off and shot his wife as he's making his case. Thank God she survived. Wow. But I mean, that this is how, how wild our reality is. And, and also I think when we have a a country that is so saturated with guns that people are constantly in fear. And then they're going, we need more guns to protect us from our guns. And it becomes a pathology. Um, But I also think underneath that, there's a spirituality to this. There is a dynamic of idolatry in this. And I, I don't think it's like extreme language to say that we've made idols of guns. We've attributed God-like power to something that is not God. Mm. We are looking for it to deliver us and save save us and keep us safe. And these are exactly the things that that the the prophets decry as idolatry mm. and they say some may trust in chariots and horses, some may trust in their Glock, but we are to trust in God to deliver us. So um and and I think you can make a case that Guns have worked in protecting people, and I think you can make a case that a lot of other things have worked in protecting us. Um, so in the end, the question for me is, what looks like Jesus? 
What is most, most faithful to Jesus? I'm Sam Hales. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. It's The Profile this afternoon. I'm talking to Shane Claiborne, the social activist, author and campaigner. Hear more of our conversation coming up right after this. Do you want to stay informed on the best of what's happening in the UK church today? Premier Christianity magazine is for you. The UK's leading Christian magazine is published every month and features interviews with Christian leaders, in-depth reporting, reviews, columnists and loads more. And best of all, you can try it for free. Head to our website now to request the latest edition worth £5.95, completely free of charge. Visit premierchristianity.com forward slash free sample. The Profile. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. Welcome back to The Profile here on Premier Christian Radio with me, Sam Hales. I'm the editor of the UK's leading Christian magazine, that's Premier Christianity. If you'd like a free sample copy of our latest issue, why not go ahead and request one absolutely free of charge? We will send you a print copy of the latest issue, no cost whatsoever. Simply go to premierchristianity.com forward slash free sample. Type your address in, we'll get one out to you. Time now to rejoin the rest of my conversation with the social activist Shane Claiborne. We've been talking lots already about gun violence in America. Let's pick up the rest of our conversation now. I think that that idea of of Christian nonviolence is one that I've seen growing um, among many Christians in this country, and I think your your country as well. And indeed, you've been a, a key figure in that of saying we cannot use violence and. Um, and even arguing that the early Christians had that attitude as well. You, you've used the term nonviolence. Would you be comfortable with a label like pacifist as well? Is, is, that, is that the kind of language you would use personally to say, I think Jesus would have been against all war, therefore I'm against all war? Well, you, I, I have a certain uh, uh, r- resistance to these labels right. because I think that sometimes what they do is they um, kind of uh, confine us, you know, they're, they, they sure. can be very unhelpful. They just create these camps and categories. Mm. And I think Jesus blew away categories. Right. I believe that Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, and that we have to be as willing to die for the cross that people have been willing to die, as people have been willing to die for the gun or the bomb or war. And until our courage... Um, even gets close to the courage that people have had for violent hmm. solutions to problems, then um, th- then we, we will continue to, I kind of think, just be background noise, yeah. you know, and all of that. You've seen some of this, haven't you, when you've traveled? I know you've been to places like Iraq, is that right? I've been to Iraq, I've been to Afghanistan, yeah. yeah and, I, and I've seen, like, I've seen the horror of what our governments are capable of. I lived in Baghdad in March of 2003, during the bombing of Baghdad, what was, you know, in our country is called the shock and awe campaign, but it was at, at points 900, over 900 bombs a day falling on Baghdad. And to see that kind of horror and experience it and go, this is what we're calling peace. You know, mm-hmm. this is what we're calling like um, the solution that like the the cure is as bad as the disease, you know, like it looks like the very thing that that uh, and, and that's what friends of mine that went over there as soldiers. They said, I went over to get rid of terrorism, but we were creating it. We were adding fuel to a fire. And you think now, like, you know, 15, 20 years after 9-11, have we made the world safer? You know, like like what what if we had had a different imagination after 9-11, not to respond with revenge and violence and retaliation and in, in like kind, an eye for an eye, right? If we had had some sort of uh, more Christ-like imagination, how might the world be different? Let's uh, let's talk about beating knives because yeah, we're man. here. We're here in the UK, and the last thing I'd want to do is suggest that all the problems are in America because they're not. We have uh, incredible problems with knife crime here at the <clears> moment. <throat> um, just at the time of recording over this past weekend, there's been um, three or four fatal stabbings yeah. just in London. It's not a problem confined to London. Actually, you talk to people in other parts of the country. This is a, this is a UK wide problem. Been going on for actually. People may think it's for months. It's actually more like years now. There's been a, a really serious problem of knife crime, um, especially amongst a lot of young people in this country. 
and and you're coming in and you're bringing the beating knives tour to the uk so it's a similar kind of concept isn't it of turning these weapons that were uh, have been used for harm and turning them into something more positive and for good so tell us a bit about beating knives yeah well i'm also want to be very careful that my posture is not <laughs> like we're coming over to uh you know <laughs> solve your knife problem <laughs> there are folks that recognize that while it's not a gun problem that it doesn't mean that the uk um uh, d- d- doesn't have any violence. Yeah. And so they saw the knives as a great opportunity um, to do that. So I was invited here. Yeah. There's, you know, local blacksmiths and metal crafters and also people who have been victims and survivors of this that we're working with, just like we did in the States. But um, I-, I think part of what is common is that we want to sensitize ourselves. That these are, I mean, I, I saw the statistics, 40,000 incidents of-, of knife violence last year, you know, that the the child uh, victim rate has doubled in the last five years. So, but those are, those can just be numbers. And so, what this does, I think, it goes. Um, each of these is a child of God, made mm. in the image of God, and we want to grieve that violence. That that blood still cries out to God from the ground. Um, and this is a way to do that. And and as I saw these knives, they're not just you know I I've, I've got plenty of knives you know old hunting knives and different knives you know pocket knives. But these are like some of these are two feet long and you know, they're they're got teeth on them. They're curved and I mean they're really uh, in, you know they're designed to hurt. Yeah. Um, and some of these were crime knives. They're not just mm. amnesty knives. They're crime knives that were used. And so um, as you see them transformed, we saw these kids you know like six, seven years old, and you think, what's it doing with their imagination as they're mm-hmm. they're transforming this metal yeah. into something else? So we made these art pieces. I think we're making a, a phoenix, and we're going to go see the, the, the knife angel, you yes, know. Yes, there is Liverpool, a knife angel right? already. So, uh, yeah. yeah, and and, yeah. Um, so this, and this is happening all over the world. You know, we our friends in Mozambique um, have made saxophones out of assault rifles. Uh, Pedro Reyes and others had a thousand guns from Mexico that they turned into a whole symphony orchestra. So they've got a violin and a xylophone. Another person made, um, after the Jewish shooting, they they made a menorah out of recycled metal um, to reclaim that. And um, in in the West Bank, they are taking the tear gas canisters and making Christmas ornaments from Bethlehem and making beautiful things out of ugly things so it's uh, but it's that prophetic imagination mm. you know that we will uh, turn the the metal of death into metal yeah. of life I, that that must be you mentioned the west bank i mean that, that must be very hard because it's it's one of those situations where christians on both sides feel so strongly don't they about that particular conflict with mm. israel and the palestinians and it seems like whatever you say on that subject you're going to be criticized or perhaps misunderstood i get the impression though you're you're trying to do ground level reconciliation peace work perhaps more than necessarily commenting on the rights and wrongs of the political conflicts is is that is that right with it with a situation like that where people feel so strongly on both sides that this is a justice issue and my team are right you know how do you <clears throat> untangle that one well the the beginning part i think is keeping our heart um sensitive mm-hmm. as jesus is what jesus wept over jerusalem because they didn't know the things that lead to peace right and so we need to grieve with everyone who's grieving. Just Jesus said, "Blessed are those who mourn." You know, so we're we're to we're to be sensitive to whoever is a victim of violence. Like that matters to God, right? Um, and and um, uh, so when I've been in Israel and Palestine, I think that um, we do a lot of listening. You know, um, um, and um, my friend Sammy Awad, who's a Palestinian Christian, he said. God's been changing his heart. You know, he's, he said that, that the Spirit led him to go to Germany and to, to, to track some of the, the um, Jewish history and the Holocaust. And he went to the concentration camps. He went to the Holocaust Memorial. And he said, now I come back and my heart aches for what happened to my, my Jewish brothers and sisters. And he says that now I see the wall and I used to see hatred mm-hmm. and now I see fear. Right. It doesn't justify indefensible things but it does say like it helps you understand them you know and so I think what happens often is when we've been hurt we transfer some of that hurt and that fear and anxiety that some of it's very understandable in history so but yeah I I, I, you know I, I think that 
I, I often just, I'm not pro-Palestinian or pro-Israeli. We're, actually, we're pro-both. We're pro-Israeli, pro-Palestinian, pro-peace. We're pro-Jesus. And that means that, uh, um, but it also means calling out the inequities. Mm-hmm. And a lot of my Palestinian Christian friends, I mean, a lot of them could care less if it's a two-state, one-state. They just want to be seen as equal people. They want to be seen as made in the image of God and have as much dignity as anyone else, you know, there. And and uh, so, yeah, but I think like uh, we were just talking about bringing the forge to uh, the wall in Israel and Palestine you know, and the West Bank will melt some guns on both sides and some, <laughs> wow. some uh, but yeah. That would be quite yeah. the project, wouldn't it? Yeah, it would be. <laughs> Amazing. I, I love that. I love that vision, though, of, of something very creative, very different. It's still campaigning, isn't it? It's still saying, you know, we're against weapons. Well, it's calling out all violence, yeah. no matter who's holding the gun. Yeah. yeah. But it's doing it in a in a hopeful way, I suppose. Um, because, you know, given we've already dealt with some very deep and difficult topics in this interview. Do you ever have days when you are just kind of despairing? Because you strike me as an optimist. Oh, that's uh, sweet, yeah. But, but I think, you know, some of this must be quite heavy as well. And are there times where you just think... I, I don't know how to fix this. The well, world's I've, gone wrong. This is all terrible. I've had a lot of friends that have taught me the difference between, you know, optimism and hope, that it's not just wishful thinking, you know, or I'm not, I, I just, you know, but but it's actually, um, you know, believe, believing that, being certain of what we do not see. And that's exactly what this is about, is, and the prophets are foretelling. Is like there, uh, my friend Walter Brueggemann. You know, he wrote this book, uh, "The Prophetic Imagination." He's mm-hmm. been a great supporter of all this, and he he says we we sometimes uh, misunderstand the prophets. We think that they were trying to uh, foretell the future, or predict the future, but they were actually trying to change the present. They were trying to name um, where we're at right now, so that we can build a different future together. Um, so that. Um, that idea, you know, I, I, I love, you know, has been said, some people see the world as it is and say, why? And other people dream of the world and as it could be and say, why not? You know, and that's what we want to do. We want to see a piece of metal that's designed to kill and go, sure, but in an hour, it's going to be something different. <laughs> and that's the beauty, I think, of what, what we're doing, too, is there's, there's power as you see, like, concrete change. You know, we keep mm. seeing all these politicians go in circles. We see another mass shooting and, you know, politicians offer thoughts and prayers and we're going like we need change you know like we we, and and so you can see that actually happen in the period of a a, uh you know two hour event or something but what's also is it's not just symbolic like there's healing that is happening Mm -hmm. it's giving space for grief and for public lament and to name that this is not okay it's very hard to argue even our we've had so many gun owners and police officers military folks that come to the forge and they they are weeping as they see mm-hmm. a weapon transform because they've all got their own stories of, of violence mm-hmm. and um one person you know will take the hammer i remember this one mom as she's beating on the gun every hit of the hammer she said this is for my boy. Um, her son was killed, of course, and, and she transformed that. But then we had another young man took the hammer. He started counting. One, two, counts up to 18. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. you know. And he just kind of left. And afterwards, he's off the side, very emotional. Big guy. you know. And I said, you want to share? And he said, I counted 18 times for the 18-year-old man that I killed. So he had been on the other side of this, you know. And what we see kind of mystically happen as we meet at the forge is like God is healing the victims and the victimizers. God's healing the, you know, those who have hurt and those who have been hurt. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's how big God's God's grace is, you yeah. know. Plenty of people have described you as a radical. What do you think of that? Well, I, I, I love the word in in its truest form. So I always like kind of do a, do a little clarity like the word radical means root you know like a radish you know it's 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 about um, getting at the root of what it means to be Christian it doesn't just mean extreme and crazy mm-hmm. wild I think it means you know in its truest form it means the roots so yeah. I you know it's, it's going back to the roots yeah it's interesting another word that that has a similar connotation is fundamentalist and you, you did an interview with us back in 20, uh, 2010 you said this you said I think that one of the most um, dangerous things uh, in the church has not 
just been fundamentalism, but selective fundamentalism, <laughs> where we choose those things that God really meant. And then he said, I mean, when it comes to Jubilee, I'm a fundamentalist, baby. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you, well, isn't it interesting how selective we are in the fund? You know, we literally, I just heard a, oh, a haunting sermon from someone in, uh, in Tennessee arguing that uh, from the Old Testament that we should um, kill, execute gay and lesbian folks like that this was a true like this is not 100 years ago this is like last week you know and yet like that it's interesting what we've been so selectively fundamentalist about Mm -hmm. and then you go um what about the jubilee you know like like what if we actually did even imagine what the spirit of jubilee would mean redistribution of land forgiveness of debt and actually on this point i'm gonna have to ask you to explain what jubilee is which i think which i think actually me having to ask you to explain that doesn't that say a lot about where we're at as a christian culture that every christian i know knows exactly what lgbt is and knows exactly what they're thinking right right but many will not even have encountered this biblical idea of jubilee so yeah so so give us a bit of a explanation as to what it is and why you're a fundamentalist about it. <laughs> well, well, it was it was God's original plan of uh, uh, realignment of our inequity, you know, so it was a systemic interruption of our inequality between the super rich and super poor. And so just like today, um, I think God foresaw that all of this, right, that we, we would have um, a few people that continue to accumulate massive amounts of of wealth, while the masses of people have increasing uh, poverty. So you have the super rich getting richer and the yeah. super poor Sounds getting poorer. Yeah, it? and so God said there needs to be an interruption. You right. know, and and there were there was a series of these, but the the jubilee was kind of the the climax. You know, the finale of that, where land was to be redistributed. Um, so that accumulation would be interrupted. Uh, slaves were to be set free, enslaved people set free. The land was to rest, which there's tons of wisdom in that for our climate and our you know environment. Um, and and um, uh, debts were to be forgiven. And right. sure, man, that that's a good one too. Yeah. You know that you think of all of the debts and uh, and, and also that the, the, I think it was just as much for the rich as it was for the poor. Mm-hmm. You know, like we have folks that. They, they have more than they're ever going to imagine spending. Yeah. We have a, less than 100 people that own the same amount as half the world. So, you know, like Gandhi said, there's enough for everybody's need, but there's not enough for everybody's greed. And that's what God was, in, you know, but, but there also was a, um, it, it's interesting to me because there was a, um, a, a process for it. You know, it was meant to be a regular part of our uh, uh, life and, um, uh and some folks will say, well, the, you know, the Hebrew, the Jewish community never really celebrated the Jubilee. And uh, one, of, one of my friends got a great response. He says, well, you know, Christians haven't always celebrated the Sermon on the Mount or followed the Sermon on the Mount. But it doesn't mean it doesn't take away from the legitimacy of it, you know. Um, but that's another one. You yeah. know, you think of the Sermon on the Mount and you're like, so, some would say red letter Christianity um is trying to take literally, you know, these yeah. verses, sell what you have and give it to the poor. So, yeah, I, I, wow. you know, we're just trying to read the whole scripture and go, what <laughs> is God saying to us? Yeah. Well, I mean, I need to check. I'm not wearing my expensive shoes at this point. because We're going <laughs> to talk, talk about, you know, Christianity and consumerism. Um, am I right in thinking, I know at one point you were making your own clothes. Does that, is that still true? Yeah, I made, I made, these, made uh, these, these pants here. So yeah. uh, I, I make as much as I can. Yeah. I, and, Part of it came, well, there were a couple of things. You know, when I was in India, they made everything. You know, the the saris that Mother Teresa and the sisters wore, the blue and white um, saris that are made in the little village I lived in. And, 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 and for Gandhi, the spinning wheel was a central part of the movement. Let's not be dependent on these oppressive structures. Let's, make, you know, live locally, grow things locally. So that's a part of our... Um, ethos as much as it can be so i love making stuff or knowing where stuff came from you know like even these shoes i didn't make these shoes i tried making shoes it's hard but (laughs) these shoes um i know the company that makes them i know how the workers are treated you know and i think that's what we want to do more and more is like um, it's really hard. To see I where, mean, speaking yeah. as someone who who looked into this, uh, admittedly some years ago, I need to update myself. But 
but when I looked into it, it was like, I well, can't shop there anymore because I don't treat people well. Let's yeah. And I started to shop some places that were more expensive, thinking, well, I don't mind paying a bit more. I can afford to pay a bit more. But we, it's important, I think, as a Christian, we shop in places where people are getting a fair wage. And then, of course, I discovered that the expensive brands were just as bad as the cheap brands. Uh, yeah, and it's yeah, like yeah. one of those things, the more you look into it, almost not the more complicated it gets, but the more you look into it, the more you realize this injustice is, is everywhere. Yeah, it's entangling. I mean, yeah. we've had it in this country recently with the government saying that big companies now under law must look to see if there is slavery in their supply chains and of course the shocking thing is in almost everything that we buy in the west uh, you know and this is changing because companies look into it they're trying to change it but there is often slavery in the supply chains of some of the everyday things that you are, i say you and i that i buy for sure yeah you're different you're you're saying well, one way around that is to create your own stuff because you know that there's been no slavery involved in making those trousers because you did it yourself yeah and and part of the thing is that we uh um we, we end up creating layers that separate us from where our food or clothing comes from. So, because we, I think we have a conscience. We, you know, we, we, we don't want to know if, if it's unjust, yeah. you know, and, and I, I, my first book I wrote about Philip Knight, who was the head of Nike at the time. And this documentary uh, filmmaker asked him, he goes, um, I, I got two tickets for us to go to Indonesia. Cause I want you to walk me through the factories where the shoes are made, you know? And he, he says, uh, no, I'm not. I'm not going to do that. Philip Knight says, "You know, he's have you have you ever been there to to the factories where Nikes are made?" He says, "No, I've never, and I won't go." Uh-huh. You know, and and you're like, part of what I hear in that is he's he's got a conscience, you yeah. know. But that that's dangerous, you know, yeah. to have invisible people. And you know, at the time too, I think it was Michael Jordan was making more money advertising Nikes than all of the people together made making those shoes so those inequities you know they only surface when we know people so if michael jordan went to those shops i'm sure he'd have some things to say you know (laughs) if and and that's that's where uh, you know even in our country you know the farm workers that now we know are picking the tomatoes and other vegetables at all our fast food chains we've you know i've been working with a coalition of immokalee workers that are um now when i go to uh i get a uh, you know something at taco bell or whatever i know like i i might know the person that picked that tomato and I am proud that we fought hard together marched Mm. together went to jail together trying to make sure that modern day slavery is not tolerated in the U.S. and that they have enough to to, you know feed their families but so yeah as much as we can we try to make those invisible faces you know visible and know who they are and um, and I like making stuff my earrings were, uh, this is bamboo from my backyard, uh, you know, so, but I, you know, I, I kind of enjoy that. And I think it, we're, we're made to make stuff and, you know, to, to humanize others. So how many times have you been arrested? Oh man, I lost count on that one. I can't, how, can I count this year? Is that fair? You know? Yeah, go ahead. No, I think I've been arrested like three <laughs> times this year. I, I told, I told some of our kids, I don't, uh, I don't think I will regret any of the arrests during the Trump administration. And we're going to look back on history and say, what were we doing? You know, and so um, give us a bit of context to that. What, yeah, I'll give you a context for uh, that. Just to reassure people who are listening, I think what terrible crime is Shane committed? Yeah. Well, I tell the kids in our neighborhood, you can get arrested for doing things that are wrong. And you can also get arrested for doing things that are right. Um, and when we get arrested, we're doing things that we believe are right. Mm. Um, and, and Martin Luther King, when he first went to jail in the civil rights movement, he said, I was first disturbed. Um, but then I looked at history and saw what good company I have, starting with Jesus, maybe, you know, and yeah. the prophets and so many disciples. Yeah, Jesus and, was uh, arrested. That's a fair point. Yeah. Um, and, and, um, and, and so, uh, and, 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 Dr. King was also accused of being maladjusted, you know, like, why can't you behave a little bit? And and he said, we need to be maladjusted in this world that has become way too adjusted to injustice and racism and things that we should never be adjusted Mm. to, you know. Um, So, yeah, John Lewis, who's a part of that civil rights movement, too, he says, that's why we can smile in our jail mugshots because (laughs) we know that we are on the right side of history. So originally, I mean, the first time I ever got arrested was for feeding people. In Philadelphia, our city passed unimaginable laws that targeted the homeless, made it illegal to sleep in public places in the parks, and they made it illegal to share food. Wow. Um, and, and all of that was a systemic, you know, I mean, it sounds crazy, but they were trying to, you know, push out homeless push folks. Out homeless that people, happened yeah. all over the United States. So we were arrested. A lot of those laws we were able to win in court and hopefully see some of those that continue to change. It's the same with immigration now, mm-hmm. though. Twenty years later, um, 
We have folks that are getting arrested, that are getting charged with putting water in the desert for uh, asylum seekers, you know. Um, so the St. Augustine um, said an unjust law is no law at all. Mm. It's as much our duty to disobey the bad laws as it is to uphold the good laws. But I think we do that in light of Romans 13. We do that, um, which calls us to submit ourselves to the authorities. There's two ways to, I think, submit to authority. And one of those is by obeying the laws that are warrant obedience. And the yeah. other is by suffering the consequences of disobeying bad laws. And that's right. how you change them. And I think that when we... We expose those injustices mm. by surfacing that. So when you see, like when we went to Iraq during the war, we took medication. And a lot of doctors took medication and basic first aid supplies to the hospitals. That was illegal. Mm. They actually went to trial and they faced up to 12 years in prison wow. for taking medical supplies to Iraq during the bombings. And what happened in the court scene we were a part of is that the federal appointed judge was like, whoa, the state has a hard case on mm. this one to, to try to prove that these doctors were in the wrong. What's been the best day of your ministry and what's been the worst day? <laughs> whoa, gosh. Uh, when Jesus said the wheat and the weeds are all growing together, it's kind of what it feels like. I, I mean, every day I wake up, I'm, I'm grateful for and, um but yeah, I don't. I don't know that I have a, a best or worst day. <laughs> but um, I'm I'm grateful for every one of them. How would you describe your calling? Well, I think my calling is to to follow Jesus, to love. We we say in our community, love God, love people, and follow Jesus. Whatever else matters. Simple as you know? that. Yeah, everything just, <laughs> just kind of sums it up. It's so true. We can so easily complicate things, and I, I love what we were talking about earlier with how you know. To, to take that example again a lot of christians would know exactly what they think on sexuality and yet would be completely um unaware even of jubilee and how we might bring that into society today but but nevertheless you know I, i'm sure we both agree theology does matter um and tony campolo who i said you work with red letter christians he's had a very well publicized change of mind on on that particular issue on gay marriage he would now say that god would um affirm loving committed same-sex relationships so i wanted to ask you have, have you been on a journey similar to tony would you would you hold a traditional perspective on that um, or, or have you like Tony changed your mind and you would now say that God would um, or God would be in favor of committed same-sex relationships mm -hmm. this is one of those things I've certainly like like many things I've I've been um, as the scripture says we're working out our salvation with fear and trembling we're constantly in process and um, on the death penalty I changed my mind right. I, yeah. I was um, uh, for the death penalty I'm uh, against it um, um, when it comes to sexuality there this is one of those things that I think is um, I incredibly complex and personal mm. to our community yep. um, our, our communities had um, sexual minorities for uh, from the very beginning for mm -hmm. 20 years um, and um, I I can I, mark moments that were formative for me. One of them was in college when a, a friend of mine was telling me that he um, uh, was gay and is gay and, and he um, wanted to kill himself because his whole life he felt like he was a mistake mm -hmm. and he had gone, he had tried to pray away the gay, he had done all of this, you know, and had demons cast, all that stuff. And he just said, like, this is where I'm at. And I'm thinking, if he can't hear and feel the love of Jesus in the church, yeah. then we've we've missed it. Yeah. Um, I um I also feel like um some of the culture wars have made this really complicated because we end up talking a lot about sex, but not as much about love. And our deepest longing is to love and be loved. And I know from being mentored by a lot of celibate Catholic folks that you can go your whole life without having sex and you can experience love and community very deeply. I also know that there are a whole lot of folks that have sex but don't feel loved. Um, and so the starting point for us is that we want to create communities where people can love and be loved. And I kind of trust that the Spirit's moving in folks, you mm -hmm. know. Um, and this is very pastoral for me. Because like, sure. I, I think like there's a lot of folks that go, 
can you, um, are you, our, our continuum for our language is even unclear of affirming, you know, are you fully affirming? Are you loving, but not affirming, you know? And, and you go like, when I think of the heterosexual marriage, it's not like there's a broad brush. I think Donald Trump and I would probably have a very different understanding of the sacrament of marriage, right? <laughs> and, and, but, and yet, like, so I don't, I don't affirm every heterosexual marriage, but I think it's a pastoral thing. Right. And, 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 and so I trust pastors. I'm not a pastor, so I don't, right. I don't, I'm not ordained. I don't perform, I don't have the privilege of performing weddings, but um, I trust pastors to, to um, discern that. You know, I, I think that it's, um, uh, I, I do want to say in our communities, um, and in our network, even in the Red Letter Christians movement, we don't all agree on, on right, this. Okay. Um, we agree on love. We mm-hmm. agree on community. Um, we have different understandings of yeah. same-sex marriage. Uh, it's not the line in the sand yeah. um, for us. Um, but and, and this is why, is that there's only like six or seven verses of the Bible that talk about same-sex attraction or mm-hmm. relationship, sexual relationships, and they're very different yeah. from how we're talking about monogamous, equi- you know, e- equal relationships of lifelong partners. That was a foreign idea to the, the those contexts, which were much more about abuse and exploitation and of men and women in those situations. You know, and so um, that that makes it that makes it really um, a difficult. Um, so at the end of the day, I I I, I know a. a uh, that Christians who love Jesus, who love the Bible, can arrive in different places. I believe a tree is known by its fruit. Mm-hmm. I have friends that are in lifelong monogamous partnerships of the same gender, and the fruit of their life looks like Jesus. It looks like everything that I know is beautiful, and I, I celebrate that with them. Um, yeah, and, and I, I am heartbroken by the way that the church is not a, able to hold tension and to um, discern this together. The Methodist Church, right, just had an epic fail where they excluded all the affirming, you know, congregations and folks in the Methodist Church. There was a proposal that would hold the tensions and allow individual churches, even conferences, to to disagree and still mm. walk together as a united right. church. Um, but there are progressive circles yeah. that are also um, in danger of saying this is our line, and yeah. if you if you don't fully affirm same-sex marriage, you can't speak or you're not welcome here. So I don't think that more exclusion is the answer. I think a deeper conversation and a deep listening and yeah. respect is so, the answer. So for you, it's it's not an issue where you would kind of draw boundaries on and say, this is a make or break issue for, for me working with you or for what it means to be a Christian. And for you, for you, I guess the debate around what is sexually immoral is not a big enough issue to divide church over or to exclude over? It's one of those things where I work with churches, pastors, organizations that are on dif- right. that disagree with each other on it. And, uh, and I want to stay engaged. Mm. Uh, I want to be, be a bridge builder. I want to be, fo- be, be able to speak into the context with folks that are leaning in and maybe, you know, becoming more welcoming um, and affirming of, of folks. Um, yeah. And for organizations that say, this is a deal breaker for us. Yeah. And I have it on both sides. I have folks like this in, in the last few months, I've had folks call me and to pa- see if I pass the litmus test, wow. you know, and they've said, so if you will not say publicly that you affirm same sex marriage, you cannot speak. I've also had folks say, if you say publicly, you affirm same sex marriage, you cannot speak. And that's why. I'm not timid about it. I, I, I've been talking about this for 20 years and I stand by everything that I've said. If people want like, you know, a, st- I think statements are cheap, you know, and right. they, and they're, yeah. they're often meant to like put, Oh, you're with them. You're with them. And I, um, I, I, I just, uh, I, I'm resistant of that. It's okay. not that I don't have convictions on this or love on this. I, I, uh, or feel passionately on this, but I, I just don't, uh, think this should be the line in the sand that we exclude people from our communities and conversation because mm-hmm. we disagree. Yeah. And we've held that tension for years. And you mentioned Tony. Incidentally, Tony and Peggy disagreed on this for years and had a wonderful debate, you know, that, that everybody should watch. <laughs> um, there's a video of it. But then the, at the end of it, they would say, well, we disagree. 
and we're still able to go sleep together. You know, and if they can still sleep together, the church sure as heck should be able to still worship together. We've talked, we spoke, we spoke a little bit at the beginning about how um, we can all have cultural blind spots. So as Christians, we grow up in a particular culture, and perhaps as we grow up, we look back and we think, "Wow, that wasn't that wasn't right." And we've spoken a lot about your change of views on things like nonviolence. Um, and you know the, the, what you're doing with beating guns into garden tools and all that good stuff. But I wanted to give you an opportunity to reflect on the UK. Um, you know, and you've already put out the disclaimer, as have I, of you know neither of us are seeking to bash each other's culture at all. But I, I find it helpful to talk to people who don't come from my culture, from my even from my Christian background, and say, well, what do you notice coming here? So what do you notice in in UK Christianity? Where you think that might be a bit of a blind spot because you've been very open about where <laughs> where you think America might have got it wrong with attitudes to guns and you know your views on <clears throat> Donald Trump are very well documented and how Christians have you would say arguably kind of got into bed with a particular political um, idea or or even political party um, now we in the UK I don't think we seem to have that problem in exactly the same way but I'm sure we have other problems other cultural blind spots if you I'd love to know if you've noticed any Wow. Yeah, you're going to get me in trouble on this one. I'm going to speak with a degree of humility, but, uh, you know, and the right uh, posture. But, uh, you know, I have been here a ton and there are things that I'm seeing this time that um, are um, it, 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 there, there's there's so many similarities. I mean, we're definitely extreme on almost everything happening in our country, you know, like but, you know, our country's talking about America first. Right. And there's this white nationalism. And when people say, make America great again, they're really saying, make America white again. Because you think, when, when was it great for, you know, black folks, people of color? Like, um, but we're, we're, there's, there's this kind of white identity that's in crisis after the first black president, after a really changing Congress and, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement. All this. So there's this white fragility and this like kind of uprising of white supremacy. We're going to take the power back. But that's almost some of the same language that I see in places here. We're going to, you know, we want to take back control. We want to, um, there's, there's this kind of closing and, and, and there's a fear. There's a, like, we don't want immigrants or asylum seekers. Uh, it looks different over here. But Mother Teresa said, um, one of our biggest problems is that the circle we put around our family is too small. It's an amazing line. Like, the circle we put around our family is too small. And whether it's America first or Brexit or some of these things, I think sometimes what it is about is like, we're saying our people matter more than other people um, or that we can't or love is a limited resource, you know, um, or our, whatever. So I, I think that's that's, you know, it's dangerous. And, and that's the problem of nationalism um, is that it's not that a love of our people is a bad thing. It's just the circle's too small. Mm. You know, like a, we're meant to love as big as God loves and God loves to be born again. Like what amazing language Jesus had, you know, like. It, it, what's born of the flesh is flesh. What's born of the spirit is spirit. Our biological family, yeah, is wonderful. Our national family is wonderful. But like we are born again. So if someone's hurting on the other side of a wall, it's as tragic as if it were our own flesh and blood, our own mother or daughter. Um, and, and that's the compassion I think Jesus is inviting mm. us into. Well, if only we had another hour. We could do a whole other hour <laughs> on Brexit, I'm sure. Um, Whoa, I'm glad we don't. No, I'm, just <laughs> I'm glad we don't, actually. I think, you know, some of us have, uh, on both sides of that particular debate, I think a lot of people are saying we're a bit bored of it. Can we talk about something else? But anyway, before we go, um, one, la one last question. And that is, you know, when all is said and done at the end of the day, how would you like to be remembered? Well, I would like to be remembered, um, I guess I would like to be remembered as one who reminded the world of Jesus, you know? I think of my friend Rich Mullins, and someone said he was an arrow pointing to heaven, and Mother Teresa said we're meant to leave off the fragrance of Jesus. So uh, I hope I left off the fragrance of Jesus. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. I'm Sam Hales, editor of Premier Christianity magazine. It's been so great to have your company on the show today. The profile is where we sit down with a leading Christian and find out more about what makes them tick. 
I've been in conversation with Shane Claiborne this afternoon. I do hope you enjoyed that conversation. If you'd like to check out more great interviews just like this one, why not have a listen to The Profile as a podcast? Just go to premierchristianradio.com forward slash The Profile. All the links are there to download this show and past episodes. Well over 100 interviews now available through The Profile podcast. My thanks to Shane Claiborne and my thanks to you for joining us this afternoon. We'll see you next time.